You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Brian McGrath. was born on the 20th of August, 1944. Soon after his birth, he was wrapped in a blanket and deposited on the steps of the church in Castle Blaney, County Monaghan. After his discovery, he was taken in and raised by the local nuns. When he reached adolescence, he was sent to the notorious Artane Industrial School, an institution for boys just north of Dublin City that, by all accounts, was a place of cruelty and abuse. The Christian brothers who ran the place believed firmly in corporal punishment, and beyond that, sexual abuse and humiliation and degradation of these boys was also not uncommon. These boys were unwanted, or the rebellious, or the misdirected, or the poor. Not many cared for them, and the brothers in Artane took full advantage of that. Brian, also called Bernard by some, stayed in Artane until he was 16. He left the school with nothing more than a new pair of boots and made his way into the city. It was up to him to take care of himself now. Shortly after this, he met Vera Langan on the Velvet Strand in Port Marnock. The white sandy beach is five kilometres long and was a popular holiday destination for Dubliners. In those days, Port Marnock was decidedly the countryside and was a huge contrast to the large housing estates and busy city life. Vera was only twelve when the two met, but they struck up a friendship and kept in touch. Brian went on to join the British Army for a number of years, and they kept up the habit of writing letters to one another. When Brian returned from his army service, the two started going out. And then, just after Vera turned 18, the two hopped on a ferry and travelled to London, where they were married. It was the 13th of May, 1967. Vera's family hadn't approved of the match, maybe because she was too young, or maybe because of Brian's background and lack of family. The young couple decided to stay in London and worked there for a number of years. They had a child, Veronica, on the 4th of August 1968, and two years later, they returned to Ireland. Initially, the small family lived with Vera's parents in Finglas, but soon after, the McGraths bought a small house in North Strand. In 1975, the couple had another child, a boy that they named Brian, and shortly after that, another boy, Andrew. Vera struggled with mental health issues, though. She suffered from severe mood swings and would often take to her bed for days on end. It made for a difficult childhood. Her children, particularly Veronica, walked on eggshells around her, never sure what might set off an explosion of anger. According to Veronica's memoir, Witness to Evil, Vera was kinder towards her little boys, though, and she doted on them, whereas she took out her frustrations on little Veronica. 
She often became physical with her, grabbing her by the hair or beating her if the little girl somehow displeased her. And Veronica was in charge of taking care of her little brothers too. There were plenty of things that could go wrong in that scenario, which would give her mother an excuse to vent her irritability and anger. But beyond these outbursts of anger and violence, the family looked much like any other at the time. Vera's siblings doted on their niece and nephews. Family trips to Dollyman Strand and trips around Dublin to the various museums and historical sites were enjoyed by all. Soon the family moved to a slightly larger house in Eastwall. Vera worked at a nearby hotel and Brian took jobs wherever he could, working in construction, as a driver, a painter and so on. The family went through some difficult times when Brian was out of work, but they struggled on and managed to keep the house, though at one point the electricity was disconnected. When their third son, Edward, was born, Brian decided it was time to make a change. They were moving to the countryside. It was something he'd always dreamed of. Brian bought a house near Cool in County Westmeath and spent his weekends fixing it up so that the family could move in. But the change of scenery did not change the underlying issues that the family was having. Vera continued to have black moods and to take to her bed. The care of the three younger boys was often left to Veronica, who desperately wanted to please her mother. This was impossible to do, though, and Veronica continued to use her eldest child as an outlet for her erratic moods. She'd have her daughter stand in the corner and repeat, I am fat, or I am stupid, over and over again, or would humiliate her in front of her friends. Veronica suffered from dyslexia, which was undiagnosed given the time, and between that and missing school to care for her brothers, she wasn't academically inclined. She left school at 15, and this was yet another thing her mother could use to break her down. Vera and Brian fought too, though. They would have explosive arguments over seemingly nothing, both of them getting physical with one another, and Vera would sometimes pack up the kids and leave the house after them. She'd go to hostels or shelters, stay there for a few days, and then return. She once picked up the kids and brought them to the UK, where they stayed at a family shelter. She put them into school and started seeing a man, and then she went back to Ireland. She left the kids at the shelter with some money and was gone for three weeks. When she returned, she came back with Brian. They lived in the UK for a while after that, but soon returned to Cool and the little rickety house that sat on an acre field. But the family's return to Westmeath didn't mark a new departure in the relationship either. The fights continued and eventually Vera visited a doctor in the next village over, explaining to him that her husband was uncontrollable, abusive and mentally ill. She had him taken to St. Loman's Psychiatric Hospital in Mullingar, where he stayed for a week until two of his employers managed to get him out. Vera was enraged that her husband had been released. She thought that the doctor had ensured that she would be the one to decide when Brian would be released. But he hadn't belonged in the facility. Being institutionalised once more had a profound effect on Brian, though. 
and he was described as a broken man after that, quieter and less likely to engage with his wife's rages. In 1984, Vera moved herself and her kids to the UK once more. This time she started proceedings for a divorce. Though divorce would remain illegal in Ireland for more than a decade, this wasn't the case in England, and that's where the two had been married. Vera and her four kids stayed in the same shelter they'd been in before in Nantwich, but just as things appeared to be on the verge of finishing forever, Brian arrived in the northern town. The divorce was not going to happen after all, and once again, the two were going to make a go of it. By this point, Veronica decided that she needed to be away from the situation. She was 16 and everything was so unstable with her family, between her controlling mother and her rages, and the moves across the Irish Sea and back again, and the responsibility of taking care of the three young boys. She heard that there was a woman in Liverpool looking for someone to work in her house, cleaning and taking the kids to school, in return for room and board. And so that's where Veronica went, leaving her father and Vera and the boys behind her. The position as a housekeeper and childminder didn't work out, and soon Veronica found another job, working at a fast food place, and got her own flat nearby. She described in her book how it was through her job there that she met Colin Pinder. He was five years older than her and into exercise and fitness. They struck up a friendship and they worked out together. Veronica started to feel better about herself. Being around Colin boosted her self-esteem. He was a tall, strong, handsome man, half English and half Jamaican. He helped her pick out clothes that would be flattering on her figure. Up to that point, her confidence had been so low that she wore baggy dresses that made her look dowdy. Eventually, Veronica left the flat she'd been in on her own and began living with Colin. But soon after, Veronica spotted her mother making her way up the path towards the door of the flat. She'd tracked her down after visiting the first house she'd worked in after running away to Liverpool. Colin and Veronica had pretended not to be home when they heard the rapping on the door but the second time Vera came by, they couldn't ignore her. Veronica hid in the bathroom while Colin invited Vera inside. When Veronica finally showed her face, after listening in on the conversation her mother and her new boyfriend were having in the next room, Vera launched herself towards her daughter and wrapped her in a hug. It was all a show for the charming young man that sat in the room with the two women. Vera explained to them that she and Brian wanted Veronica to come home, but Veronica was resistant. The older woman left, but they kept in contact. Each phone call came with a request for Veronica to come home. Eventually, Colin and Veronica decided to make the move. They arranged to rent a cottage down the road from the family home, but when they arrived in Cool in March in 1987, they discovered that the deal had fallen through and no one had told them. Instead, there was a small caravan pulled around the side of the house, and that was where the young couple was to live. And then, Veronica was back in the situation that she'd been in before, minding her brothers and at the mercy of her mother's moods. According to Veronica, Vera liked to show Colin off around the area. He was young and handsome, and, to her, exotic, 
so she liked the attention that he brought her. Soon after they moved, Colin and Veronica became engaged. She was only 18 and the two had only been together for three months, but neither of Veronica's parents seemed to mind the plans. Veronica was miserable living next to her parents, though. They yelled and fought and threw things and constantly picked at one another. But for whatever reason, neither would leave. That is, according to Veronica, up until they had a visit from a local clergyman. It wasn't any priest, though. It was Father Brendan Smith, she said. A man who, in a few years, would be notorious for the amount of children he abused as the church moved him from parish to parish. His involvement in the McGrath's lives centred on counselling Vera and Brian through their marital issues. Smith told them that they should spend some time on their own, just the two of them, no kids. They should take a holiday. And they needn't worry about the boys. He'd stay in the house and mind them, and surely Veronica would help too. Vera loved the idea of a breakaway, but Brian refused. For whatever reason, he decided that there was no way he'd leave his boys like this. He left them with neighbours and family before, but this plan was no good to him. Vera was furious. A huge argument ensued after the priest left the house, and Veronica had had enough. She managed to secure permission to move her little caravan to a field owned by a family friend. And away from her mother, things improved. For Veronica. Her parents' relationship was still tumultuous. Shortly after the visit with the priest, Veronica arrived to her family home and it was clear that there had been an argument. She found her father in his bedroom and he said that he'd had enough. He felt as if his reputation had been ruined by the stay in St. Lomans and he could no longer bear being in the house. Veronica asked him not to leave, not to leave the boys, but according to her, her father was defeated. When she turned and opened the bedroom door to leave, she found her mother standing on the other side. She'd been eavesdropping and was silently furious at what she'd just heard. The tension in the house only increased. One night in late March 1987, Vera and Brian visited Veronica and Colin. Vera sat in the caravan with the couple while her husband went to see his friend who owned the land. When they were done there, both couples walked back to the family home. At some point, for some reason, an attack occurred. Brian was beaten. He died of his injuries and was buried in the field next to the family home in a shallow grave. And then, life seemed to carry on as normal. Vera told her friends and neighbours that Brian had left her to go find work in Holland. Then, she went to a solicitor and had a barring order taken out against Brian, saying he had beaten her and had forced her into numerous shelters for abuse during their 21-year marriage. After that, she applied for and was granted deserted wives' allowance, a social welfare payment for single mothers. Veronica and Colin were married in the registry office in Mullingar in April 1987, and then Vera decided to head to England again with the three boys. Colin and Veronica moved into her family home and kept in contact with Vera through letters and phone calls. But she was concerned about the state of her husband's body in the field. She didn't want her neighbours to notice it. Vera returned about five weeks after she'd left 
to deal with the problem created by a poorly dug shallow grave. She and Colin exhumed Brian's body while Veronica kept the boys locked in the house. They built a papyre and put the body on it and set it alight. They fed the fire with fallen branches and wood cuttings and let it burn until there was barely anything left of the body. When the embers cooled, Vera sifted through the ashes, collecting larger bits of bone, which were burned once more in the range in the house. What was left was broken up and spread out on the garden, along the side of the house. They also burned his passport and any other official documents left in the house. Brian McGrath was gone, obliterated. Soon after the bonfire, Vera, Colin, Veronica and the boys moved back to England. There, Veronica had a baby boy. But rather than move on from what had happened, things only became more tense between the family. Vera and Colin now constantly fought. To Veronica, it seemed like her mother had replaced one dysfunctional relationship with another, and she could see echoes of it in her own relationship with Colin too. Finally, Colin and Veronica decided that they needed to leave. They packed up their baby boy and visited Colin's parents before returning to Cool. But when they got there, Vera was waiting for them. She said she wouldn't be able to cope on her own, and so she'd followed them. She was also furious that she'd arrived before them, demanding to know where they'd been for those four days. Rather than try once more to live with her unstable mother, Veronica found a flat in nearby Castle Blaney, but it was a rat-infested dump and no place to have a baby. Colin left for England again, saying he was going back to look for work and a place for them to raise their child, and Veronica grudgingly moved back in with her mother. But soon, the letters and phone calls from Colin stopped coming. He had decided to move on and had met someone else in England and wanted nothing more to do with the McGraths. Veronica was devastated and tried to make it on her own, but with a young child she found she wasn't able to. She remained tied to her mother. They moved to Navan and eventually Veronica had another son. Six years later, she fled to Liverpool, where she stayed in the same sort of shelter that she had lived in with her mother when she was a child, now with her own two boys. There, she felt more settled, and eventually confided in one of the workers what had happened to her father in Cool. The police were called, as well as a solicitor for Veronica, and she retold the story to them. She waited to hear back, but Time was passing, and so she called a friend in Ireland and said she needed help. She visited him and told him what had happened. Again, a solicitor for her was arranged, and Gardy dropped by the house to take a statement from her. Then Veronica was asked to show them where the burial had happened. Vera was still living in Navan, and was none the wiser that her daughter and the Gardy were walking the field down at the old family home. She showed them where the attack had occurred, first near to the house, then moving out to a ditch by the side of the road, and then back to the house where her father had died. She showed them the depression where her father's body had lain for a short time, where the body had been burned, and then where the pulverised remains of Brian McGrath 
had been scattered in the garden. A forensics team was called out and they examined the 18-inch deep grave that had been dug. In it they found a jawbone complete with teeth and bones from a human arm. There were also scraps of clothing. They took away a number of concrete balustrades, pillars from the land, as well as shovels and spades, a number of knives and other hand tools. In the end, it was thought likely that this was indeed the body of Brian McGrath, and a murder inquiry was opened. Despite the unbelievable story Veronica had told Gardee, it appeared to be true. Brian McGrath had been killed and buried there on his own property and it seemed no one had noticed. Vera McGrath was then arrested on the 10th of November 1993 in relation to the suspected murder. She was questioned for two days and finally admitted what had happened, saying that during the attack she had hit her husband only once. The real violence had come from Colin Pinder, she said. He was the one responsible for the death and had said that he'd done it to protect Veronica from her abusive father. And then, Vera was released. Gardee tracked down Colin Pinder, who was by that time living in West Yorkshire in the UK, and travelled there to interview him about what had happened that night too. His story was again different from the previous two that the Gardee had been told, this time involving racial slurs and an accidental death. In the meantime, while the investigation was still ongoing, Amazingly, Veronica and Vera were still a part of one another's lives, even after Veronica told her mother that it had been her who had gone to the Gardee. They lived with each other on and off in the Navin area, and when Veronica had her third child, Vera was living in the house with her daughter then too. Veronica had had a number of on-again, off-again relationships after Colin. The only one that seemed stable was with the older man who she'd told about her father's murder, a man she calls Philip in her memoir. She was living with him in October of 1996 when her mother received news that no charges were to be laid against her in relation to the death of her husband, and the inquiry into his death was now closed. Veronica was astonished, and Vera was exhilarated. Gardie had spoken to both of the people who had been accused by Veronica, and both had made statements to the effect that Brian McGrath had been attacked and killed, but the director of public prosecutions felt that the case could not proceed without the confirmation that the remains that had been found were those of Brian McGrath, and at that stage in 1996, that kind of DNA testing was not possible in Ireland it was decided that the confessions alone would simply not be enough to prosecute. In the years that followed this shocking news, Veronica's three children ended up in foster care due to her mental ill health. She was later diagnosed with depression and PTSD. She moved around a lot, never able to settle down, and eventually married again in London. There she had two more children, daughters. She thought that her father would go without justice, and that the authorities back in Ireland had given up on the case entirely. But in May 2008, the Garda Serious Crime Review Team decided to take on the inquiry and revive it. 
they contacted Veronica and asked for permission to exhume the remains that had been found at the family home in Cool. She agreed. And then, astoundingly, she returned to Cool and to her mother. The Gardee were out to search once more at the family home, and unsurprisingly, Vera and Veronica argued. Veronica stayed with a brother who was living in Galway and gave yet another statement to Gardee while there, going over what she had told police in England, as well as the Gardee. Shortly after, Veronica discovered she was pregnant once more and moved herself and her two young girls into a mobile home on the land next to her family home in Cool. Her mother lived in the house and there was another mobile set up next to hers where her brother lived with Veronica's eldest son. In November of 2008, Vera was collected from her home in Cool by the Cold Case Unit and brought to Mullingar Station where she was questioned and then released. Colin Pinder was brought to the same station in February of 2009 to be questioned as well. However, on the 6th of that month, he was charged with the murder of Brian McGrath before a special sitting of the district court at Athlone and remanded in custody. Eventually, the Gardaí arrived back in Cool to inform Vera that she too was being arrested in connection with the murder. She appeared before Longford District Court to be charged. She spent the following week in the women's section of Mountjoy Prison before being released on bail. One of the conditions was that she was to stay away from her daughter and the house in Cool. On the 14th of June 2010, the trial began. Vera and Colin were tried together because it was alleged that the murder had been a joint enterprise between the two. Initially, both pled not guilty to murder but shortly before evidence was to be heard, Pinder changed his plea to guilty of manslaughter. This plea was not accepted by the state, though. On Friday the 18th, the jury was seated before Mr. Justice John Edwards. Senior counsel for the prosecution was Dennis Von Buckley, with Patrick Gageby, senior counsel, defending Vera McGrath, and Connor Devely, senior counsel, appearing on behalf of Colin Pinder. After the routine evidence given by Gardee of the places involved, Veronica McGrath took the stand on the third day of proceedings. She described her story to Mr. Buckley, who brought her through her parents' relationship, her meeting Colin Pinder, and the events that led to her father's death so many years before. Veronica recalled how, late in March 1987, Vera and Brian had visited the property where Colin and Veronica lived. Brian went to visit his friend at the house while Vera called into the caravan. Veronica said that her mother was filled with a strange energy that evening and spent her time with the young couple in conversation mainly with Colin. She joked with him about wanting to be rid of her husband and teased him, saying that he wouldn't be up to a task such as that. Colin had pulled a large wrench from a toolbox and told her that this would do the trick. After a while, the three of them walked up to the house where they chatted and drank tea with Brian and his friend, and then all four of them walked back to the family home together. When they arrived back there, the attack began. Veronica said that Colin had pulled the wrench from his sleeve and had hit her father over the head with it. Veronica fled at that point. Then Vera grabbed a lump hammer. Brian had grabbed a ladder and feebly tried to keep his attackers away from him. Then Veronica came back, crying and in shock, not knowing what was going on, 
and Vera ordered her inside to turn the radio up so as not to wake the boys from the sounds of the fight. They were sleeping inside. Brian tried to get away and stumbled up the drive of the house to the main road, where he hid in a ditch by the hedgerows. Colin had at this point picked up a slash hook with a long handle and was swiping at the bushes. Vera followed close behind. Veronica ran to her father and held him as he begged for the attack to stop, saying that if they would only give him the car keys, he would leave, that Vera could have everything if they would just let him go. And yet, neither Vera nor Colin stopped. Brian tried to make a run and to grab for the slash hook, but he ended up collapsing just at the gate. Colin picked him up and propped him at the back of the house. Then he hit him over the head with the concrete pillar. And with that, Brian was dead. Veronica recalled that her mother and Colin had decided that they would bury Brian's body on the property. Meanwhile, she hid inside the house, in total shock at what had just happened. Vera and Colin dug a shallow grave at the far end of the field that the house sat on, breaking a number of shovels in the process. When they were done, it was time to clean up the bloody mess that the attack had left. Vera woke Veronica and put her to work, cleaning down the outside walls of the house, which were covered in blood spatter. In the spots where Vera couldn't remove the blood stuck to the exposed brickwork, she smeared tar over it to cover it. And then, with her story complete, came Veronica's cross-examination. Mr. Gageby did not mince his words. He asked Veronica if it was fair to say that she had given her testimony in such a way as to ensure that she could not be seen as responsible for what had happened to her father. He put it to her that she was manipulative and had placed all the blame on her mother in order to deflect guilt from herself. Gageby questioned why it was that Veronica had consistently returned to her mother throughout her adult life, long after the supposed trauma of seeing her kill her father. On top of that, Veronica had been party to the complaints made against her father of abuse and mental ill health. But Veronica denied all of this on the stand saying that she had been pressured to say these things by her domineering mother. Mr. Devilly took a very similar tack and focused particularly on the incident where Veronica backed up her mother's stories that landed Brian McGrath in St. Lomans. He even put it to her that perhaps Vera and herself had thought up the story Veronica had later told to the guardee to shift blame away from themselves entirely and to try and place responsibility for Brian McGrath's death firmly on Colin Pinder's shoulders. She spent five days in the witness box defending her version of the events. Neither Vera McGrath nor Colin Pinder took the stand in their defence, but their statements made to the Gardee were read into the court record. Their stories differed from Veronica's, and indeed from one another. The notes from Garda interviews with Vera McGrath in 1993 had gone missing by the time charges were filed, but her signed statement was available. In it, Vera had told the Gardee that her husband had been volatile and abusive, that they'd argued on the way to visit Veronica and Colin in the mobile home that evening, 
and that when she told her daughter and soon-to-be son-in-law about Brian's behaviour on the walk there, Colin had said he would take care of it and showed her the spanner. The three had sat in the mobile home and discussed how they could be rid of Brian McGrath together. On the walk back to the family home, she'd seen Colin slip the tool from his sleeve. She'd motioned for him to stop, and yet, while she was busy getting the door open for everyone, Colin had attacked. Vera insisted she'd only hit her husband once, and this was because Colin had told her to. Colin's story from his signed statement was entirely different from that of the two women. He had told Gardy that Brian had been verbally abusive towards him and used racial slurs. The day Brian died, he'd arrived home drunk and the two men had had words, Brian using those racial slurs again and calling him the N-word. Colin had attacked him, but Brian had fallen and hit his head on the iron range in the kitchen. Then he, Vera and Veronica had planned how to be rid of Brian's body by burying it. Vera had later insisted that the body be burned. Given how vital it had been in being able to bring about charges, it's no surprise that DNA evidence was also presented. It was cited as the reason no prosecution had been pursued after the initial investigation, despite the previous statements to the Gardee admitting that a crime had occurred. Now, the remains that had been found in the field back then were positively identified as having belonged to Brian McGrath, using comparisons with samples provided by Mr. McGrath's three sons. There was also further evidence provided by a forensic anthropologist, Laureen Buckley, who had examined the remains. She told the court that near to 50% of a skeleton had been recovered from the shallow grave and burn site. Some of the bones were burnt, some had only been partially exposed to the fire, and some were entirely unburnt. Most of the bones were broken, and so it was impossible to determine a cause of death. Some of the breaks were from before death, and most were from after. However, there was a serious injury to the jaw that it was clear had occurred before death. This could have been fatal in a number of ways, but without more information, it was impossible to say precisely what had happened. The other McGrath children were also called to give evidence of what they remembered of their parents' relationship. Arguments, yelling, and so on were recalled, and fights had gotten physical but the boys didn't go so far as to say that there had been domestic abuse involved. They did recall being beaten on at least one occasion by their father. The many moves between Ireland and the UK were also confirmed. The doctor who had referred Brian McGrath to St. Lomans gave evidence too, and recalled how Veronica had backed up her mother's statements about her father being violent and delusional. His notes recalled that Mr. McGrath was aggressive, agitated, and paranoid. He also noted that there were an abundance of bruises visible on Veronica. On cross-examination, he admitted that he had never seen Mr. McGrath himself, recalling that the patient wouldn't wait in the clinic to be seen by him for assessment. A witness called by the prosecution named Mary Manning gave evidence that she had attended the wedding of Veronica and Colin Pinder on the 18th of April, 1987. It seemed she had very little to add to the proceedings until Mr. Devilly for Colin Pinder began his cross-examination of her. 
During this questioning, Ms. Manning recalled seeing Vera McGrath crushing tablets and putting this medicine into Brian McGrath's tea. Once Brian was drugged, Ms. Manning said that Vera had dressed Brian up in ladies' clothing and called a doctor, saying that her husband had gone mad. In more testimony heard through cross-examination of various witnesses, the court was told that Vera McGrath had, quote, misconducted herself sexually with several local men, end quote, and one man said that he wouldn't be alone with her for fear of Vera putting him in a compromising situation. Evidence lasted five weeks and concluded with the closing speeches, which focused unsurprisingly on the evidence given by Veronica McGrath against the two defendants. Devilly said that Veronica had been a tool of her mother and had sided with her rather than her father when he was alive. Vera was the one who drove the situation in her household and the one who instigated the attack on her husband. Mr. Gageby said that Veronica had been clever to come forward and tell a story that put herself in the clear and downplayed her involvement, pinning the crimes on her mother and on Colin Pinder. And with that, the jury was sent out. There was an objection from the prosecution because Gageby had effectively said that Veronica had gotten immunity from prosecution when she came forward, but there had been no such deal in place. When the jury returned, this was made clear, and then the four days of Mr. Justice Edwards' summing up began. He told them that if they accepted the prosecution's case, either of the parties could be convicted on the basis of joint enterprise, never mind who may have struck the fatal blow. However, each defendant's statements could not be used against the other. Further, they were to treat the evidence given by Veronica McGrath carefully. She was, according to her own evidence, an accessory after the fact, and therefore, the accomplice evidence rules should apply. Her testimony needed to be corroborated. Neither Vera McGrath nor Colin Pinder could be convicted on her evidence alone. The jury deliberated each verdict separately. First up was Colin Pinder. After four hours and five minutes, the jury returned with their decision. He was found guilty of manslaughter. Deliberations about Vera McGrath's role in the killing took longer. Eventually, after two days of discussion, the jury returned with a majority verdict. She was guilty of murder. Vera McGrath was given the mandatory sentence of life imprisonment, and a number of months later, Colin Pinder appeared back in court to be sentenced on his manslaughter conviction. He was given nine years, backdated to when he was first brought into custody. But this was not the end of the story. As usual, an appeal was lodged on behalf of Vera McGrath, and the problems that the DPP felt were present in the case way back in 1996 were raised once more. There were two main arguments presented in the appeal papers. Firstly, Colin Pinder and Vera McGrath were both charged with murder, and the case was that it was a joint enterprise. Both had set out with the intention of causing the death or serious injury of Brian McGrath. But in the end, Vera had been convicted of murder, and Pinder, only manslaughter. That's not joint enterprise. In his closing speech at the trial, Mr. Vaughan Buckley for the state had even said, quote, it's joint enterprise or nothing, end quote. 
The second argument was that because the trials were conducted at the same time, with the same jury, information that was prejudicial to Vera McGrath but was not provable by the prosecution was available to Pinder's defense team. They used this information to paint Vera in a bad light. The prosecution hadn't used it because they knew they couldn't. It was inadmissible for them. But Pinder's defense managed to elicit testimony about Vera McGrath that certainly made her look bad. In essence, they threw Vera under the bus. The Court of Appeals was told that this had made the proceedings wholly unfair. The state argued at the appeal hearing that, given that the book of evidence was available to both defendants before the trial, Vera McGrath and her counsel should have known that the material that was in it that painted her in a bad light could be used by Mr. Pinder's team, and they should have, at that point, requested that the two be tried separately. But the panel of three judges in the appeal court didn't agree. They ruled that just because Mr. Pinder was pleading guilty to manslaughter on the basis that he didn't have the intent, the mens rea required to have committed murder, this didn't mean that Vera McGrath's team should have known what was planned by her co-defendant. In fact, some of the testimony that was brought out by Pinder's team during Cross wasn't even directly relevant to his case. It was purely prejudicial towards Ms. McGrath. It was this irrelevant, prejudicial evidence that resulted in the Court of Appeals quashing Vera McGrath's conviction in March of 2013. They directed that a retrial should take place if the DPP wished to pursue the murder charge against Ms. McGrath. After the ruling, Vera McGrath entered a bail bond and walked free from the courtroom. The only evidence now available to the state to try and prove a charge of murder against her were her own statements, which downplayed any role she might have had in Brian McGrath's death, and the statement of her daughter, which would require further corroboration, given that it was accomplice evidence. In June of 2014, Vera appeared before the court once more, this time charged with assisting Colin Pinder by helping to dispose of her husband's remains after his killing. Days after she was charged, she appeared in court again, to plead guilty. She was sentenced to 18 months, but having served two years and seven months of her life sentence already, this would be credited to her. Vera McGrath walked free once more. The case of Brian McGrath was the first prosecution taken on by the Garda Serious Crime Review Unit, Ireland's cold case investigators. A detailed forensic examination and incriminating statements weren't enough to secure a murder conviction against Brian's wife. A chaotic life, lived by the McGrath family, served to make it nearly impossible to know that a crime had been committed back in 1987 when Brian first went missing, and then again with the passage of time to prove murder. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you've liked what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe and give a five-star rating. Or honestly, tell a friend. That really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Lisa Himes, Neve Murphy, Bonnie Lee, Cindy A. Ortiz, and Carol Ann O'Malley. Thank you so much, guys. Your support means the world. 
Supporters on Patreon get access to bonus content and ad-free episodes, as well as nifty menswear merch, so check it out. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music by Juanita Meisel. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do.